And we're live. Thank you for coming back for yet another episode of the Blasters and Blades podcast. Hey, all you crazy sci-fi and fantasy fans. It's time for your daily dose of shenanigans over here at the Blasters and Blades podcast. Just three nerdy veterans geeking out over our science fiction passions and fantastical fantasies. A place where magic is king, the sky is the limit, and space is the place. We are the podcast that puts the fun in dysfunction. So without further ado, we're going to introduce our guest, Mr. Roy M. Griffiths. Can you please introduce yourself to our listeners and viewers? How you doing? Uh, everybody calls me Griff. Um, I was in the Coast Guard like 30 seconds before that became my nickname forever. I, I get that. I get that. So uh, aside from being a, a former Coastie, uh, you also write things, I'm told. I have written the odd thing or two, and some of them are odder than others, yeah. Uh, I, geez, you know, started writing when I was 10, uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs, you know, Ray Bradbury, all that stuff. I went down the, the path of madness. Uh, uh, I did short stories. I did poetry. You know, it's all about the chicks, uh, <laughs> plays, uh, screenplays. I worked in Hollywood for a year and uh, I was in the writer's guild and I've just kind of drifted into writing novels and, uh, I really enjoy it, but, uh, yeah, I've written all. How did you? Since we, we went a little out of order, but I'm digging it. How did your love of speculative fiction transition into you writing plays and books and poems in that space? Not everyone thinks I like to read. Let me write my own stuff. Um. Well, okay. Really, uh, my first religious experience was reading Edgar Rice Burroughs. Uh, I was about ten. Um, the short version is family drama got me dumped in a grandparent's house and military brat myself uh so i didn't know these people real well so i was you know like alone isolated didn't know what the hell is going on but i knew i could read you know i've been doing that for a long time and um so i i, I mosey over to this little used bookstore and somebody had dumped a whole bunch of their valentine paperbacks of edgar rice burroughs and so uh i knew i knew the name because my dad and i used to watch the old black and white tarzan movies you know on saturday morning and he's the one who first told me that somebody had written these stories you know i mean i think i thought they were documentaries at first but you know when dad told me somebody made them up so i saw the name and i thought well, what, what can i lose i got a quarter and uh i pointed down for book one of a princess of uh princess of mars right john carter mars series um and for whatever reason, man, it hit me right, it hit me at the right time of my little miserable life. And uh, so I pedaled home on my bike, well, where I stay, and, uh, you know, go go into some corner where nobody would bother me. And I start reading, man. And like, you know, eight hours later, I come back from Mars. I'm a changed man. You know, uh, this was the first book I read that it, I don't know, grabbed me. It was immersive and transported me, you know, as... I was right there fighting the Tharks and all that sort of stuff. And I remember, seriously, I remember thinking so clearly, this is magic. This is real magic, and I want to do it, and I'm going to be a writer. And that was it. You know, and I like this, the imaginative stuff, so I went that way. You know, I went uh, I went Ray Bradbury and, uh, like, you know, Heinlein and, you know, all those kinds of guys. And... Uh, uh, my first effort was no doubt a bad fan fiction uh, version of, uh, you know, Princess of Mars type thing. But I just kept writing because it was probably a way for a lonely kid to sort of uh, express himself and work himself out. But 
at a certain point, I found I just really dug it. I mean, I, I, I kind of, I enjoyed surprising myself and, and, um, I just wrote all kinds of stuff, man. I wrote, you know, uh, there's a reason I have a real, a real serious career is because, uh, I, I found, I, I just would write whatever interested me. Um, when I was in the Coast Guard, the, at the air station in San Francisco, as a, I was a rescue swimmer, you know, getting my Errol Flynn on, um, I was a 62nd uh, rescue swimmer in the Coast Guard. But I was still writing, you know, I was on the boat, uh, I had a, jeez, uh, I was on an A2 foot patrol boat. And if anybody's ever seen them, they have a, they have a locker about this high and that wide. I made some space, you know, you, uh, you, you ship, uh, ship people know that when you're uh, an E2 living on a boat, all your stuff can go in that locker. That's it. I made space for my, my old portable typewriter. And so I, you know, I was still writing, but, uh, there was a point to this whole story anyway. Uh, you know, I just, um, I just don't, I just wrote and I wrote different <laughs> things all the time, just whatever interested me. So at the air station, they knew I was writing and I, I had some one act plays. I won some awards with those. And for the station newsletter, they said, Hey, you want to write something for it? So I wrote a children's story called his amphibian hood, uh, about a prince who thinks he's a frog. And, uh, it was sweet. It was nice. And, you know, I got like a lot of, of you know, really nice things that they said. And but one of the things I heard the most was, when are you going to write another children's story? And I'm thinking to myself, well, I've written one already. It's, it's time to go write something else. And I think my next story was something about a merchant seaman who was trying to find the vampire who killed his wife while he was out uh, out to sea. You know, and it just whatever, whatever idea sparked me, that's what I would write. Um, I can't, uh, uh, looking at, at a lot of self-publishing, you know, people do a lot of series and stuff. Uh, that's where the money is. And, you know, you can't blame anybody for that. But um, I can't I can't be that guy who writes 26 books in the Sloth Shapeshifter series. You know, I I would have to kill myself if, if I thought I was doing that. So, um that's why I, I was all over the place. Same with films. You know, I just, if I had a, something I thought would work well, I'd do that or, or a screenplay, I'd write that. Okay. So we went a little out of order because I was just have riffing on it, but uh, normally Doc's here to keep me straight. But so this, you're one of the ones who found me and not the other way around. So how did you hear about our podcast? Um, I believe it was another person you interviewed. I want to say uh, Mike Gallagher. Okay. That, that fits. Uh, I know him Him and Declan sent a bunch of people our way, so I just... Okay. Right. Well, we're yeah. glad you did. Um, okay. I, I so, did you read... You know you know Gallagher's uh, book. I, I blurbed it as uh, Spiritual Warfare with Brass Knuckles. You know? I mean, it was... Uh, I thought it was really kind of fun and original. But that's just, I, I dig it. Um, yeah. His his uh, his short story in... Um, oh, the, the Weird West one, I'm actually going to be doing a review of, so for okay. my website. Uh, and I, I do I do book reviews now for Upstream Reviews, so that's one of the ones I pick, just because I like short, con short content in general. Uh, yes. And anthologies are great that way, because you can pick and choose a couple of them and get more content out of it <laughs> than just okay. one long yeah. book. So okay. it's, it's uh, you know, pick your poison, so to speak. Sure. But uh, we, we before we get too deep, uh, i gotta got to do this, sir, and my finger is on the kick button, but... The religion question, Star Wars, Star Trek, or Firefly? Uh, oh, man. Oh, gosh. I feel like I'm going to 
have to commit a heresy here. Because, um, you know, I kind of grew up with Star Wars, the original series. I love I love the first Star Trek, excuse me, first Star Wars. Uh, and then, of course, they brought the um, the uh, Apocrypha, the last of the middle three films, uh, which were just ghastly and, and it proved the truth of what Harrison Ford the famous words he said to George Lucas making the first film. What's that? Which were, George, you can you can type this shit, but you sure as shit can't say it. Um, and anyway, because um, I love George Lucas's stuff, I'm gonna have to go with Firefly. Um, Excellent choice. My dad may never speak that to is me up. again, but, but here we go. Uh, I'm sure you. Can, you know, bribe him with coffee. It works on my day. Um, and because we're polytheistic, Game of Thrones, The Wheel of Time, or Conan the Barbarian? Uh, I got to throw it down with Conan. Robert E. Howard. I mean, the guy was a lunatic. Yeah. You know, mad, what a you know, mad genius. And I and I live in East Texas now, and I think he, he wasn't too far away from, from uh, me. I got to go find that out. But yeah, he was a Texas boy. And he's like, where did that where did that stuff come from? From this guy who was, I think, worked in the oil fields or something. But uh, yeah, Conan, just because it, it, especially the Howard stuff, it was so, I think, in a way, pure and authentic. You know, we're talking first century, you know, uh, religion. It was like the first century Christians when you're dealing with Howard and Conan. You know, he just, yeah. he just laid it out there. So. Which was your first love, though? Was it sci-fi or fantasy? You know, I think uh, at first it was probably sci-fi, but you know, uh, the like the Heinlein uh, teen stories that he did, you know, in the fifties. But um, then it just sort of evolved to, if it's a good story, I'll read it. Um, you know, uh, modern literature lost me a long time ago. Once I started noticing that these were stories of um, people who'd given up, you know, they, that seemed to be the what most modern literature was about. Uh, very different than you know uh, Atlas Shrugged, for instance. But you know, modern literature was mostly about life is terrible, people are horrible, and why are we bothering? And that's like. That, you know, that does not, uh, doesn't resonate with my experience of the world. And I don't know, it was boring. It was, um, it was like they found, you know, one of the things I used to wonder about is why did they always paint the Madonna and child in the, uh, in the Renaissance? Well, it was their theme. I finally realized that, oh, it's a theme. So the artists are just, well, here's my different presentation of the theme. And, you know, then you got Salvador Dali and the melting watches and the Madonna or whatever it was. But I, I realized that a lot of it seems like a lot of modern literature, their theme is, you know, life is terrible, people are horrible, and why bother? And, and they, they just work in different variations of that theme because that's sort of their religious icon, iconography. Uh, the same with the 50s were horrible, women were, were desperately oppressed, and, and you know, and, and all that usual stuff. But if you start to look at it as a religion, you go, oh, okay. Well, that's not a religion I'm interested in because I'm much more of a religion of hope and and uh, uh, we make we can kind of make our own world. To, to quote James Cameron, he probably stole that from Harlan Ellison too. You know, no fate but what we make. 
And, and I believe that's true in a lot of ways. I don't mind the darkness in a story as long as there's a, a light at the end of the tunnel. But when it's all just gore porn, I just, uh, I'm not there for it. Totally. I, I'm with you. And, and also, to me, that's also, it's also kind of lazy. You know, I mean, uh, to, to, you got me started on the religion thing. Well, Ecclesiastes, I don't know if you've read the Old Testament. It's a, this been a while. Yeah, it's been, it's my favorite book in the Old Testament. Don't but, tell uh, the nuns. They might get the ruler back out. Oh, wow. Okay. I better quote this correctly. But anyway, he had a lot of <laughs> interesting things, one of which was one fool can destroy the work of many wise men. You know, and, and the idea is it's always easier to tear shit down. Can I say shit on this podcast? Anyway, it's always yeah, easier to tear things down. Much harder to build something new and original. I mean, Conan, that was new. That was fresh. That was original. Lord of the Rings. Very new, very fresh, very original. But I got to tell you, you know, at a certain point, you see all these, uh, gosh, these, these milk pail imitations of Tolkien. Anymore, if I picked up a book and it had orcs in it, I, had orcs in it. I, I chucked it. Because it's like, somebody did orcs already. Why don't you do something else? Do something original. Because for, for one thing, that's a lot heavier creative lifting. And you got to actually do some work to come up with a, a world and a species or whatever, an antagonist that, um, you know, that it's original and creatively coherent. Yeah, but that's part, that's hard because the, the readers want your story to be just like every other story, but different. So it, there's, there's a, <laughs> you deviate too far from the, from the center line and they're going to hammer you too. So it is definitely, you're walking on a knife's edge when you start, sure. when you start doing that. Well, I guess I guess that, that's the difference between one of the. I mean, you know, Burroughs, he was he wrote some great stuff, but you know he was definitely writing some make the mortgage kinds of books at a certain point, which you know is okay. You was a working writer, he created some stuff, and then you know he he just went with it, uh, <clears throat> and he kind of beat them all to death toward the end there. But that's okay. He was old and tired. But um, I don't know. You know, uh, do do you want to just grind out the product or do you want to write something i, I mean i think it's possible and this just kind of getting to where i come from is uh i think it's 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 very possible to write something that has those elements of the stories we like to read you know the the adventure the suspense the characters the last if you can work them in there um and still have it be meaningful in a way you know and, and you said gore porn that and that's I mean, how much of what is published today is porn in in sort of the uh, uh, the more the broader sense of being sort of this illusory fantasy world? You know, I mean, yeah. this is something the feminists in the '80s or '90s wanted to hear, but a lot of the stuff women read is porn. You know, they they think it's wholesome. Well, you know, it's it's the guy who's going to fulfill their their every need, and that's you know them off in the sunset to his ranch or whatever it is and they'll have babies and it'll all be good but uh you're talking about romance people it's romance but <laughs> my bad my bad <laughs> so what is it about the larger umbrella of speculative fiction the, the fantasy the romance or the romance well, i guess speculative fiction can't have romance but the fantasy the sci-fi the horror all the the genres that encompass the umbrella that is spec fic what is it about that umbrella of of storytelling that you love um 
Uh, first for me, what I discovered in my novels, uh, screenwriting kind of drove me to, to writing novels. And it wasn't screenwriting itself. It was dealing with Hollywood. Because pretty much every story you hear about Hollywood is true. Um, you know, but the thing I think finally broke me was uh, I wrote, I'd written this well-received and currently award-winning uh, screenplay about events in the Korean War. And, uh, but you go to these places, the, the top guys don't really read the scripts for a long time. They have, you know, all, all the lower level people, which is, you know, I mean, okay, fine. It's got to be done. It's efficient. But somebody likes your script well enough. Uh, they say, yeah, let's, we're going to take a look. But then you go in for a meeting, right? And if you've ever been in the corporate world, you know, a meeting is basically anti-productivity in a room. But, <laughs> but meeting for a screenplay is you have like six, four to six MBAs who are about 26 years old who've never written anything in their life. But they know what's selling. They know what's trendy. They know what is, you know, I, you know they have their checklist, essentially. Uh, and then they're giving you notes on this screenplay. Maybe you beat your brains out on for two years. You know, you poured your heart and soul into. And so it's just part of the, it's part of the dance, you know. You got to show yourself, well, I'm a, I'm a good, I'm a, you know, team player here. I will listen to your inane comments, um, you know, and your suggestion. Okay, hey, can we make this for Steven Seagal? No, I'm sorry, we can't. Um, but so it's the Korean War, 1950, for, for you history buffs. And uh, this one person said to me, you know, I'm going to have to get back to you. I've got to go check and find out if it's okay to make the North Koreans the bad guys. And I'm like, do, do you know anything about the Korean War? Do, do you know who we were like actually fighting and, and why? And anyway, it's just like, man, I'm, I'm done. You know, this is like the death of a thousand paper cuts. So anyway, I went from there to, to, uh, to writing. I think what I'm liking most about speculative stuff is the creative challenge. Um, I do this six volume historical fiction. I mean, it's all fiction, right? It's, I mean, we lie for a living if you're a fiction writer and hopefully you lie well, but I did this, yeah. uh, six volume historical fiction series and, um, that it was starts in World War One. Sounds like a romance. My wife said it was a romance. I said I was too manly to write a romance. But, um, you know, volunteer English nurse meets wounded English lieutenant drama ensues. And it covers uh, like two decades, four continents, and ends up, starts in the trenches of France, ends up in uh, Hollywood in 1937. Covers a lot of ground. That's, but one of the challenges that's a whole is, lot of journey. Yeah, there's it's a saga. What can I say? Um, but um, one of the challenges I, I set for myself was I wanted to write it as if it had been composed, and the cat's trying to kill me here, uh, has been composed during the time period, the events of the story. And, and what that meant was, you know, I had, to, I had to change my vocabulary, my sentence syntax, how I describe things, um, you know. I mean, there's no skin, no boinking, very little harsh language. But at the same time, if you wanted to make it... Um, immersive and and um, involving and, and gripping what i found i was ending up doing was i was writing scenes that essentially had a hole in them and that hole is what if you were going to be lazy and creatively bankrupt you would fill with the gore porn or the you know the, the war porn or whatever but by 
by kind of removing that from my my toolbox, if you will, I was forced to work a lot harder. At the same time, I think it ended up making it more vivid for the reader because it got the reader engaged um, because they had to sort of fill in that hole themselves based on the hints I was trying hard to put in there without resorting to, you know, the cheap, uh, the cheap gratuitous violent stuff, if you um, and I, you know, I, I didn't, that challenge I liked because it really forced me to write differently and, 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 um, uh, so that was a great challenge. Uh, and I drifted, you know, I've, I've written science fiction stuff and I've written, um, uh, the vampire story and I've got a great vampire screenplay that I'll turn into a novel someday. But I think with any fiction, but especially speculative fiction, and you, it, it, I, I appreciate that this, you said a broad umbrella because it really is. But I think what I like about it um, is the ability to have people look at something in a different, a new, a new way, and to you know sort of reframe the perspective uh, in a in a fun way, you know, versus the didactic, thudding agitprop uh, that we get subjected to so much, but. It takes, and you've got a sort of a broader canvas and broader creative world instead of building blocks to work with and speculative stuff. And um, so that I like. And, you know, I mean, I went from uh, really serious uh, historical fiction, which, you know, people like. Uh, and then there was like some, some personal tragedies, not to go into them. Too much depth, but uh, my high school girlfriend died about uh, three months after I finished historical fiction saga. Very suddenly, you know, it's a sad story. And she, you know, she'd been my first love and my first fan. And I thought I'd have like 20 more years to be sending her stuff, you know, because I'd, I'd always, hey, here, read this. And here's another manuscript. Bless her heart, she would. Um, but it really, it, it surprised me, you know, how, uh, how hard it, it hit me. It was really a, yeah, it was, it was a bummer. Uh, and then six months later, my mom died. So for about a year, there was no writing happening. Um, and so when I felt myself finally kind of pulling out of that and, and getting some some distance on on all those emotions, uh, I'd had this idea, which became the opening of the thing from HR, which was so different from what I I had written. But uh, I. I needed to to write something really lighthearted or goofy, you know? I mean, it all depends on on how you want to describe it. But for myself, this was such an unusual idea. First, there was a challenge of my, my main character, for those of you who are uh, following along at home, is a shugga, which are, they're basically the shubs of the Lovecraftian world, you know? And um, the what started the whole idea was... Uh, you know, just sort of recognizing I work in a corporation now to pay the bills and feed the cat and stuff. Um, but, you know, if you worked in any kind of organization at a certain point, you realize anything, any, any big organization, no matter what its mission is, they've got these people whose job is to write the paychecks, you know, buy the toilet paper, um, you know, get the travel vouchers out. And I just sort of kind of wondered, well, who, who would be doing that for the dark elder gods you know, on the, the, the dark things on the edge of time and space waiting to, to consume us. And then the only answer to me was a shugga. And 
where it was going to go, I really couldn't have told you at that moment, but that was just sort of what, what uh, came to me. And obviously, it's not something you can take seriously, you know, because the, the, the Lovecraft stuff, not a lot of laughs in the uh, Lovecraft in the original. Um, um, but uh, that too, I something about it I liked. I liked the offbeatness of it. And, and, the, and in this case, the creative challenge I set myself was, I'm not going to hold back. I don't care how goofy it is or how silly. I just wanted to avoid stupid, you know. Because stupid is also kind of a cheap, a cheap creative out. But I just told myself, I'm going to be as goofy. If it makes me laugh, that's cool. And if nobody likes it, that's cool too, but I'm going to write it. And I enjoyed it a lot. Um, it became very different. And it just surprised me constantly. And as, as I got into the story, it became clear that sort of this uh, paradigm I set up accidentally I could go a lot of places with it, and I've I've gone two more books worth, and uh, I'm working on the fourth right now. All right. So we mentioned that you served in the U.S. Coast Guard as a uh, as a pedal pirate rescue swimmer, but uh, how do you feel like your time in uniform affects the stories you tell, or do you feel like it affects the way you tell stories? Um, I think mostly. I think what it does is uh, it's kind of brought me back to my my theme. You know, one of the, you know, one of the things we had to do is unlearn some of the nonsense we've fed ourselves or been fed by, you know, our peer groups or whatever. And, our, you know, once I realized, like in boot camp, um, once I realized, oh, look, they're trying to, uh, here, okay, in case anybody's wondering, this is a cat, that's, that's Ava, um, I realized, uh, you know, they're trying to get us to stop thinking like 52 screaming individuals on a sinking boat because then we were all going to die. And they, and they wanted to get us to work together as a team. Um, and, you know, it was, it was that idea of partly of looking at things, oh, cat's laying on the keyboard, uh, looking at things differently and, again, forcing a change of perspective, like maybe looking at life from the point of view of a shuggeth. Um, but the other part of you know, just recognizing our choices, you know, our choices matter, that we we all have, have power. Um, the whole rescue swimmer thing uh, just kind of came to me one day and I said, yeah, I, I, I think I need a challenge here personally. I was a drama geek in high school, man. I didn't learn to throw a, a baseball, softball until I was 22. You know, all the moving around didn't really serve me for uh, interscholastic sports. But uh, but I'd never done anything like that. And it was this huge personal challenge, um, which, you know, I had to dig deep and discover, well, first I had discipline if I wanted to do this and get through it. It was the second toughest school in the Navy at the time. But how it affected me, man, really, the, what I came out of that is uh, our choices determine our lives. They determine the quality of our lives. Um, and, yeah. So that's uh, that's a big that's a big part of my writing. Um, you know, the, the first the historical fiction series is called "By the Hands of Men." There's your theme. You know, the hands of men can make a heaven or a hell. It's up to us to choose what we're going to do. And as long as you're not, uh, you know, prisoner chained to the wall of a North Korean prison cell, there's a lot in your life you can you can take hold of and change. 
may cost more than you want to pay, but there's a lot. You have a lot of control on how your life turns out. So you'll get a kick out of this as a former coastie. When I deployed to Iraq, I actually, my unit was technically in Camp Arif, John Kuwait. Uh, we escorted convoys. We picked them up at Navstar, which was right on the border. And then we'd go all over. Didn't spend much time there. It just in theory, the tent existed with my name on it. Uh, but one of the few times, I think the 12 times in the year and a half I was there uh, on my second tour that we were there, uh, we went by the pool because Camp Arif John had one. And the, the soldiers that were with the military personnel assigned to be the lifeguards for that base as their combat deployment, U.S. Coasties. Oh, so <laughs> the, the irony was not lost on anybody, including them. But, I mean, yeah. they were getting combat pay to sit by a pool. So I, I guess who was the real winner there? Not me. Um, <laughs> so I figured you'd get a kick out of that. And so that's, that's uh, I don't talk about it as much. But my first job, uh, well, I guess to my newsletter I do, my first MLS in the Army was bosun's mate, uh, watercraft operator. And really? in theory, I was, supposed, I was supposed to enlist into a watercraft unit that was designed to be riverine patrol so riverine squadrons yeah. um that ended up get, that mission ended up getting given back to the navy um yeah. the unit that i enlisted to because i was guard and i was transferring states to go to college the unit i enlisted to someone forgot to tell the army it stopped existing in 74 i enlisted in 98 um <laughs> oops paperwork you know it's a thing uh, yeah. And so they sent me to be a truck driver. But while I went through the, the watercraft school, because they, you know, I wanted to keep my bonus. Uh, one of the things we learned was uh, it's a lot different as a watercraft, uh, you know, anything on boats than it is on land. Because, you know, once this fighting starts, everybody in the Navy, everybody in the Coast Guard is a combatant because it's the ship you're on that determines not your MOS. Because if your ship sinks, it doesn't matter if you're on a tugboat. Or, or destroyer, you're still going in the water. So you learn teamwork matters in a different way. I don't want to say more, but definitely differently. And yeah. uh, I had to, I had to go through the Navy firefighting school, and that was an interesting experience. Okay. Um, because of that, you know, the you don't see it, you can't see everything, but you just have to learn to trust the people you're with in ways in the infantry you don't really have to. Because yeah. I can see what's in front of me, right? Like, if I need verification, I can peep it with my own eyeballs. Uh, in the middle of a, of a fire line where you only see the guy in front of you and your mask is fogged up because right. it's 100 degrees in this fire you're putting out. And you're smoking. a big honking hose, right? Yeah. And, uh, I mean, it, I, so I did the damage control in the firefighting school at, at Norfolk because that was where the Army sent us, Norfolk Naval yeah. Base. And so it was definitely a unique experience to realize that, you know, as much as we bag on the Navy and, and the Coasties, when crap hits the fan, I'd rather be a grunt walking on the ground than in a boat fl floating in the shark-infested waters and hoping that we don't go under. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. and don't even get me started on those poor fools that joined the submarine forces. No, thank Ooh, you. Yeah, yeah, no, no. I like being yeah, able to see right. the sunset. Yeah. So <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, the coast. The damage control, the funny thing was, it was, uh, we did it on the USS Buttercup, which was a PT boat in the middle of a pool so they could like uh, hydraulic it into the water so you could suffer like leaks and stuff. And uh, they put you so you're, uh, that basically it gets to the shoulders of the shortest person. And if it gets there, you lost the drill. And I happened to get assigned the twins there. They were both, I think, I think the taller one, she was like 5'1", and her oh. sister was five foot. They were shorties. Uh, and so like, we didn't, we didn't have the, the benefit of trial and error. It was, you get it right the first time or everybody dies because wow. they were so short, but, yeah. uh, but yeah, so it's a whole different world. And, and I, I definitely can appreciate that of what the, uh, what the Swabies have to go through. 
yeah. that we don't, like I said, the, one of the reasons I ended up in the infantry is because they said, well, as a watercraft operator, if your boat breaks, you're walking because you're joining the grunts you're supporting. So they sent me to infantry school as a secondary, but, you know, did OSAT. And so you, you get a little bit of all of it when you do it that way. And I have to say, you're right. The way the the ship people have to think, it's totally different. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, um, on the, the helo is I, I got, I mean, I got so much religion about teamwork because, um, you know, I, I was maybe the tip of the spear because I was the one who would jump out, swim over to the sinking boat or whatever and, you know, put the people in the basket or, or you know, do some EMT work. But if we weren't all working together, man, I had a long swim home. So, um, you know. Is I, it true they made the Kevin Costner movie about the Coast Guard? That was about you, right? <laughs> Shoot, man. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I, I hung out with some of those guys back in the day. But, uh, yeah. By the way, that, that that's film, a, that was about 85% accurate. The the Coast Guard movie that I'm, I can't remember the name of it, people, but Kevin Costner was well, one of the main characters about Coasty Rescue Swimmers. If you haven't checked it out, let Google do your talking, and it's worth it. It's a good one. It's called The Guardian. It was pretty. It was pretty decent. Okay, there we go. So, do you ever draw from people you knew when you were in the military? Only one or two. You know, um, uh, there there was this one E nine I worked with. Um, my see my again. You know, trying to figure out why I was doing my life. Uh, my first four years in the Coast Guard, I was an ET. But I ended up uh, answering phones and doing travel orders. So I got out of the Coast Guard and I looked around and I said, man, this is not what I got in the Coast Guard to do. So I actually went back in. I was going to be a bosun's mate. But that's a different story. But this uh, this 1E9, he was salty. He was a salty guy. He'd been on, you know, he'd been on the, uh, the in the old Coast Guard on tugboats out in the Pacific going between Okinawa and Japan. And, you know, he'd done some stuff. And he just had his... A really interesting character. So I've used him once or twice in uh, one of my novels. But um, specifically, no, I think that's probably about the only one I've really used um, very deliberately. Um, the um, the chiefs are a whole nother breed of people. It's weird. Yeah. Um, you know, again, it just sort of depends on what their rate is. But um, yeah, but this guy, this guy was salty. He had some great stories. You know, he's about the, you know, the handmade dress blues you would get in the Philippines for, you know, 87 cents or something. And they would all have, uh, <laughs> you know, dragon embroidery inside the sleeve of your dress uniform and, you know, and just stuff like that. Like that, that appealed to the history buff me anyway. And he'd be telling me, yeah, we used to be able to press the old gabardines. We'd put them under a mattress and lay them flat and sleep on it. Be pressed the next day for inspection. You know, stuff like that. I love stuff like that. So uh, yeah, no, no, I I dig it too. Yeah. Um, in fact, if you ever get up to uh, to the Newport News area, Fort Eustis has that transportation museum, and they cover some of the watercraft stuff. Um, it's, 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 it's definitely. It's what you're saying, that, uh, Newport News in Norfolk, because I was on a tugboat. I was on the I was on the 82 foot patrol boat in I think Suffolk, and then I was on a tugboat in Norfolk before I went to okay uh, rescue sewer school. So yeah, I know the area. Um, yeah, that uh, Fort Eustis has uh, has the transportation museum there. It's it's interesting. Um, the weirdest thing was I went back after Iraq, and they had a thing about the gun trucks in Iraq, and there were some people memorialized on the wall that I knew that that I served with and ran missions with. And I, there's just it's weird going to a museum and people you know were in it. I'm like, especially when you're in your early twenties, 
That was mm -hmm. that was a, an interesting experience. But I, I do think if if the base is not locked down, anybody that's in the area should definitely check that museum out. It's 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 intriguing. All right. So do you think you've talked about how the your time in the Coast Guard affects the way you tell stories? Do you think it changes the way you engage with content as a reader, as a consumer? Well, like I said, I think I have I have I have less patience for 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 nonsense, man. I mean, um, there's a book called Aurora by a screenwriter named David Cope or Cop. He, you know, he's written a lot of stuff. He wrote some of the Jurassic Park films. But um, I, I, I just uh, chucked it here a couple days ago because it had it cheated. You know, I just hate that. I hate I hate reading a book or watching a movie and that has DCS in it. To me, that's dramatically convenient stupidity. That's just lazy. Um, where you know this this hyper competent guy, he's you know he's handling, he's dealing with stuff, he's doing great. But the one time out, he gets into his car and he doesn't look in the back seat, and the giant slavering monster is waiting to grab him. It's like, come on, man! You know, you just told us you've like set us up, and then you listen. And then you know, Stephen King's really bad about that, but that's another story. Um, I think it's just, I think really, it's made me less uh, patient with uh, bad work. Okay, all right, that's fair. So let's transition over because we got uh, long-winded. See, this is what happens when two history nerds get together, and Doc's not here to rein us in. Um, but uh, transitioning away from the writing side, let's talk about things from a fan angle. So, have you gotten any cool fan art or cosplay yet? I have not. Um, I'm looking for groupies too, but in lieu of that, um, anyway, <laughs> feels like putting together some fan art. That'd be great, man. I'd uh, love to feature it in my my newsletter. That'd be terrific. So uh, what about autographs? That's sort of a milestone for every author. Has anybody asked for your autograph yet? Um, I've done book signings and people have asked for that. And um, some people, um, this is a whole, actually sort of a whole different, it's part of a whole different discussion about, about the power of indie publishing. But um, yeah, I, some people have said, man, I'd love, I'd love to have something signed, even if, Gosh, they were, they got my audiobook, right? So I, I printed up a copy of, uh, there's the covers on the back there, one of those, signed it and threw it in the mail to the guy. So uh, yeah, yeah. Um, but one of the coolest things, no, I mean, it's great. Um, first off, don't quit your day job, kids, if you're writing novels. Um, but uh, health insurance is a thing, people. Ooh, yeah. Um, and the VA, time consuming. Very. Yes. <laughs> A lot Preach. of lag, a lot of lag there between uh, between uh, requesting services and receiving services. But <laughs> one of the cool things um, is, I mean, it's you know anybody who writes knows that that unless you're like so completely trendy, they 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 snap you up. I remember reading this. You may have seen something like this where, where somebody was saying, you know, I'm an inveterate tweeter, and I got a novel deal based on my tweets. I'm thinking, well, if all you're doing is tweeting, how are you actually writing a novel? But that's another story. But um, so the money aside, you know, whatever money comes in, great. You know, hey, I'll buy some coffee or some wheels for my, my 10 speed or something. But but the really cool part, besides seeing the reviews, because again, writing is a lonely business. You see me here in my, my lonely office. Uh, writing can be a lonely business. And, and sometimes you wonder, am I fooling myself? You know, is this is this crap? Because because I mean, I think it's good. Otherwise, I wouldn't be spending you know, all my time doing it. But 
you know, people spend a lot of time on crap and either they don't know or they don't care. Um, so it's, it's nice. The reviews are nice. But the best part of all really is when people send me emails uh, or they Facebook message me on my, uh, my writer page. And I've gotten some really cool emails from people um, like this, this lady who uh, I just saw it again the other day. She's 82 years old, lives in New Zealand. She was a newspaper writer and editor. But when she was a young woman in Britain in the swinging 60s, she was a personal assistant to uh, Peter Cook and Dudley Moore. Now, that's before a lot of you guys' time. Dudley Moore was part of a, you know, uh, I think they called themselves Beyond the Fringe. They were this real radical comedy group in, uh, in London. And here she was. She had been going to university, but she, she chucked it to go work for these guys who were, like, you know, making wild comedy and stuff. And she has these terrific stories about, you know, Dudley Moore coming back from Paris drunk and lipstick all over him, going back to his newlywed wife. And, and how they had to deal with that. I just love that stuff. Another guy, um, and these were emails I got on for the historical fiction series. Another guy was in the, the, uh, the I can't remember the exact name for it, but he, he was in the Dutch, uh, the Dutch Indies, and he was in the militia during World War II. You know, I was like a 16-year-old kid, and he's telling me stories about that. I, I love that stuff. I, I just, and just, just hearing from people especially. I mean, they, you know, these books make people laugh and, you know, uh, but yeah, that's like the best part of all is hearing from people, not only that, that the book moved them or made them laugh or cry or whatever, but then they start telling you about their lives and that's awesome. Yeah. So, all righty. We, we, uh, we are long winded, but I'm having fun. So I hope you are too. So finally, what is the weirdest or funniest interaction you've had with a fan since you started writing? Oh man, um, I know. put you on the spot. You did. Huh. Well, um, I'm thinking. I'm thinking. I'm drawing a blank, man. Uh, you know, I, I I went off on the whole email tangent. Um, I think the the ones, the, just the weird ones are. Um, the, the ones don't get what you're trying to do, you know, it's, it's, and they get angry, you know, um, like, like say my Cthulhu Amalgamated books, they're clearly not taking Lovecraft seriously. Um, I, did you know that homage is the French word for ripoff? So I wasn't trying to do an homage of Lovecraft, but I was certainly, you know, trying to honor it, but you know, people get upset if, this is personally I said because the, the Lovecraft book wasn't what they wanted it to be. You know, they were like, I, I guess they were expecting the the oozing and the slime and the disemboweling and the, you know, the sweeping in and destroying whole continents and watching them sink beneath the waves and the wailing of people. But this the gnashing of teeth. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, exactly. And, and of course, the, the you know, the, the brooding dark gods watching it all mirthlessly and laughing. Um, but they were, they were upset with me because it wasn't that. I was like, man, I'm, I'm sorry. You, know, it's, it, you read the back of the book and it, it says it's not that, you know, but uh, yeah, so that, that was a little weird, but 
you know, I mean, I guess if we like our stuff, we like our stuff. We don't, we don't want to see it messed with. Yeah. I I don't want to see a gay Superman. I'm sorry. You know, it's just, it's just me. Call me close-minded, but that's not the Superman I know and, or the Superman I want to engage with. So, but I'm not sure I'd actually go yell at somebody about it uh, because pretty clearly says, you know, gay Superman. Okay. Not, not for me. Thanks. I'll, I'll go watch something else. Yeah, it's it's a lot easier instead of getting upset about everything. Just ignore what you don't like and move on. Life is short, you know. Life but is while short. we've already talked about in the introduction, because we went out of order, but I had fun doing it about okay. all the stuff you've written. So before we dive into the novel that brought us here, we're going to pause for a moment and shamelessly shill for the man. Uh, when a strange symbol is found at a burned-down historical site, Houston arson investigator Emmy Anizo goes to work. As mysterious and inexplicably hot fires break out across the drought-ravaged city, she finds herself digging through the ashes of history. It's a race against time to track down the serial arsonist and explain the seemingly impossible heat of the fires. As strange evidence begins to pile up, Amy wonders if the arsonist is insane, or even worse, possessed. Can Emmy and her colleagues find and stop him before the entire city burns? Parsec award-winning author Paul E. Cooley wraps ancient mythology around an eerie contemporary tale that will leave you burning for more. Gare's Inferno, a free podcast novel available from shadowpublications.com and iTunes. Some mysteries shouldn't be solved. Um, thank you for sticking with us through that commercial interlude, but uh, now since we don't want to dally... Uh, before this episode goes to three-hour mark, uh, let's dive into the book that brought us here. Okay. So let's talk about The Thing from HR, a Cthulhu amalgamated novel. So where did you get the premise for this this novel and universe from? LinkedIn. Wheezy board, psychedelics? No, no. Hired no. candy? <laughs> no, it was LinkedIn. Uh, weirdly. My, uh, really? Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, the way I, the way I write is... A lot of a lot of whatever I write comes from like asking questions. You hear something, you hear a story, right? You know, like your story about going from army bosun's mate, which is pretty funny by itself, to infantry guy, and, and all of a sudden in between. So, uh, but I'll hear something, I'll uh, or mishear something, and and I end up asking. You know, I'll start asking questions. I just wonder. You know, it's like, oh, why did they do that? You know, why why they make you not a bosun's mate? Why uh, or what would have happened if you said no? Damn it! I want to be a bosun's mate, you know. I, and just, just, I wonder about stuff. So my day job is uh, I'm a I'm an IT supervisor, right? Um, I'm, yes, I I am a geek. I can't escape it. But um, so occasionally you have to hire people, and and you know you go th- you have to go through resumes, and at one point in time you get a lot of resumes, and. You know, you're, you're kind of flipping through them. You know, you've already got your, you know, your quick filter. Whoa, that's in crayon. You know, can't do that. Um, but so you start to notice trends, just like they're uh, in corporate, the corporate uh, educational trends for a while. It was who moved my cheese. You know, I, I hated that book. Uh, and then the next year was the five dysfunctions of a team. And, you know, so that was it for a year. And then it was crucial. Anyway, so. There will also be trends in resumes. And one of the ones I happened to notice in my despair was everybody, every resume has this sort of mission statement about, you know, here I am. I, 
you know, because a resume and looking for a job is like dating. You're trying to convince people that you're cool and worth spending time with. And so everybody has these mission statements. And that was the, the format that was really popular for them. Everybody was a, you know, I'm a, I'm a network engineer and a, um, you know, world-class pastry chef and a thought leader. Everybody was a thought leader. And you know, I, I was bored and my mind wandered. And I was just thinking, man, what, what more fatuous a title could I come up with? Because a thought leader, what the hell does that mean? You know, I'm, I, I do interpretive tap dancing and I'm a thought leader. Okay. That, that, that tells me nothing. Um, so I just was wondering what, what title could be more fatuous than I'm a thought leader. And, and all you guys who had to put that on your resumes, I know, you know, professors and coaches told you to do it for a while. I, I hope you don't take this personally. So what's, 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 what could be stupider than I'm a thought leader. And all of a sudden this term just sort of leaped in my mind, which was, uh, the blithering excrescence from beyond the stars. I said, okay, that's pretty pretentious. That's a sort of very pretentious title I could see on a resume. And then the next thing that went through my head was, um, well, where would this person be employed? Well, they would work for the Cthulhu organization, obviously. And that's where it started, man. Just, okay. I got a weird title. Where do they work? They work in this organization and it, it just went from there. Your your avatar is staring at me numbly, so I don't know if. Uh, no, 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 no. I was listening, and then I was about to start talking, and I realized I didn't unmute. Um, okay. <clears throat> so before uh, we get started talking about the story, um, can you tell us about the age range? So, like, we have people that listen with their kids. What um, what can they expect? Like, what what's okay for this story? Let's call this a, a PG thirteen. You know, not for the eight or 10 years old, 14, if they're smart and they've done a little, you know, a little reading, a little dabbling and kind of the classic uh, fantasy stuff. There's not a lot of, you know, again, the, the pornography of uh, graphic description in it. Uh, uh, there's a lot more um, stuff that's a lot more alluded to. But, uh, you know, the very minimal, minimal, harsh, harsh language, because I'm tired of the the shortcuts that. Profanity. Why was Richard Pryor great? Because his profanity was was poetry. But then you get all the pretenders just thinking all you've got to do is throw a lot of MFs out there and, and people will laugh. Well, you know, Richard Pryor supported everything he did with a great story. You know, he created like an entire world in these stories and that profanity work. Anyway, um, PG PG 13. Um, okay. Yeah. The humor might be a little bit beyond them, but uh, some a recent reviewer said it was understated and subtle. Cool, I'll take that. Okay, well now I'm going to pull the cover up, and uh, we're going to talk about what the uh, what the inspiration for this cover, like what's the story, how did this art come to be? And uh, as you answer that, I am pulling up said art. Oh, the cover. Okay. Yeah. Well. Basically, I really wanted to go for a pulp feel, you know, again, to, to sort of honor where it came from, but um, also trying to come from, come at it from a different angle, so we'll see it a little differently. I also wanted to, to show our, our, our uh, the monster, 
who maybe you don't realize is actually the hero. He's, uh, uh, his uh, nickname is Narg. Uh, then he looks a little goofy. You know, he wasn't huge slavering. It wasn't the bug-eyed alien, you know, with the girl wrapped in his tentacles and, you know, the, the tongue and the teeth. But I also wanted to honor the pulp, uh, the pulp antecedents, because you know, I, I, the, the artist, I had to keep saying to him, um, you, you know, the girl, she needs more curves, and and then, oh, she needs more torn clothing. I'm sorry, man, it's it's, it's just the vibe, because I actually went back and looked at a bunch of pulp covers, and that's something you might want to do, being a history guy, because there was some amazing artwork in those pulp covers, uh, and some of the originals go for like. 40 grand and you can see why because it's actually terrific art subject could could not work for some people but anyway um so it was more like um somebody had uh, told me the cover doesn't need to necessarily be directly from the story this one kind of is more or less but uh mostly i just wanted to give people that that pulp vibe which i don't think we see enough of these days anyway Okay. I definitely appreciate the pulp myself. So, and that old iconic art, it's, um, there's something to be said for that. Um, so what would your 30 second elevator pitch be for the thing from HR? Uh, let me see. What's a nice shuggeth like him doing in a dump like this? Um, Narg is, uh, works in uh, HR, which actually stands for human restraint. He's, uh, his life is just like streaking and gibbering, gibbering. Um, and you know he's content. You know he's a, he's a shuggeth. He doesn't have big ambitions. Um, but then one day his uncle, who's one of the, who's a minor elder thing, and who works at the amalgamation, asks him a favor. He wants him to go down to Earth and pretend to be a human. Okay. Does he say why, or is that a spoiler? um actually he doesn't know why it's uh um it's a voyage of discovery it's 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 the hero's journey if the hero is sort of like this 12 foot tall greenish thing with uh hundred a thousand eye stalks on his head okay i think i dated her in middle school but uh <laughs> what uh what do you think makes the thing from hr special what makes it stand out uh I would say because it 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 um, it gives us a kind of love a kind of Lovecraftian world we haven't seen before. Um, you know, a lot of the Lovecraft stuff is really dark, and and you know, this has got my choice theme in it too. Because you know, the question is, if you've just been told your whole life you're a, you're a bad guy, you're supposed to be a bad guy, are you a bad guy? You're just you know, or have you just been told that? And what are you going to do once you maybe see a different way to live or exist or, you know, slither or shamble? Um, so, yeah, I think, uh, I think, and also putting it in a, a comic, not a mocking, you know, I mean, parody can, can be, uh, can be pretty mean and have that mocking tone to it. I'd like to think this is more, um, uh, affectionate humor. Um, but again, just just twisting a little bit. It's like going around the side of something, so you see it from a different view. I mean, uh, 
you're looking at a car, maybe it looks it's okay over here, but it's beautiful over here, right? You know, it's a 57 Chevy looks great. But you come around the side and you see all the, the Bondo somebody slapped on with, uh, you know, what looks like a, a side shovel. So it, it just gives you a chance to consider it differently. And, uh, you know, and I, I like, he's kind of questioning, you know, uh, because these creatures in, in a lot of, in a lot of pulp, the bad guys are bad guys just because they're bad guys. They're bad because they're bad. Well, you know, let's look at it a little differently. Why are these, do these creatures have a reason for doing what they do? And uh, it was just fun. And, and, and I think the, the, again, the fun for me was because Nora gets uh, stuffed into a human body and they're going to provide him a, a native guide. Um, Nora ends up going back to about 19, 1937 at an Ivy League school. He stuffed into the body of a German physics professor, but he doesn't have any information about what's going on other than knowing his name. So they give him a native guide. Unfortunately, the native guide is a surfer dude who died in the 70s. So he's pretty much as clueless as Narg is about the society and what's going on. So it was, it was kind of, uh, so there's that element of uh, the thing out of water uh, story too. So do you delve, because you're talking about um, transcending time, it sounds like, do you delve into the paradoxes that are that exist around the concept of time travel, or do you just sort of let that fly? Well, that was, that was actually one of the fun things, because allegedly, you know, these, uh, these beings exist outside time and space. So, um, so he, he begins to see uh, humans as, as trapped in time, you know, prisoners of time, essentially. Because he's been so used to being outside of time and space and, and <clears throat> three-dimensionality, which became kind of tough to talk about, um, that, yeah, it wasn't so much about the paradox. It was more about a creature that, that was uh, not bound by time suddenly is. And what's that like? And, you know, he gets to learn about all this stuff he, he had no idea about, like gravity. Okay, so what tropes do you feel like the thing from HR, a Cthulhu amalgamated novel, hits the best? Uh, really, it really is the fish out of water, uh, hero's journey, uh, the uh, the reluctant hero, because all, all Narg wants to do, he just wants to do his job and get back home. He just has to figure out what his job is. So you told us about your main character already. Mm -hmm. But do you have any secondary characters that were especially memorable? Well, people really seem to like his native guide, Murph. Murph the Surf, um, who uh, has been, you know, um, an unwitting, he's been an unwilling guest of the HR department back, you know, in that place, again, outside of time and space, they call Riley, or, you know, there. Um, and so... He's, uh, you know, first he's glad to be out. He was hanging upside down uh, in a cavern being nibbled on by the bearded clams. Um, and, uh, you know, the, they all, all these, all these places have, have these, these ponderous names. And I was writing some this morning and, you know, none come to me right now. I should grab a book, but, um, but so he's glad to just be out and walking around, you know, uh, even if he doesn't know what's going on. And so, in a way, he's 
he's kind of uh, he's sort of the audience, which personally I think in in, uh, in in a lot of popular sorts of things, it's really useful to have a character who's the audience. Uh, you remember in Jaws, uh, Sheriff Brody, he was kind of the audience. He was the one going, man, I don't want to go out there. Man, we need a bigger boat, which is what the audience, you know, was thinking and what they would be thinking if they're in that, in that situation. So in a way, Murph is kind of the audience going, this is bad. You know, we need to leave. Uh, you know, people don't do that kind of thing. So people really like him. And then there's just a lot of uh, uh, di different characters that, that all sort of feed into it. There's bad guys, there's Nazis, there's cultists, there's uh, Femme Fatale. Um, yeah. And then there's Murph. So what did he do to get be hung upside down to be nibbled on by bearded clams? He he lived poorly. He made bad choices. I don't want you to wait too much, but yeah. Oh, okay, okay. So what about the bad guys? Because it sounds like what I would think of as a bad guy character is the main character. So does the series, the story, at least specifically book one, have a bad guy that they have to face that you can tell us about without spoilers? It's going to be tough. Uh Basically, you know, Narg's uncle, who who is, in fact, the blithering excrescence from Beyond the Stars, known affectionately by Narg and his secretary as Uncle Beatbits. Uh, basically, Uncle Beatbits just sends him down to Earth to sort of keep an eye on these troublesome humans. So that's part of uh, Narg's journey of discovery. He's trying, first trying to figure out what the humans are up. Well, first he got to figure out being human, which is, uh, you know, a challenge. And then once he starts to fit in a little bit, he has to figure out what they're up to. And this is 1937 with German physicists. There's, they're, you know, uh, they're they're starting to explore some things that might be detrimental to uh, humanity in the names of science. And then it and it turns out there's more going on than that. So um, no, there's a variety. You know, there's the red herrings. There's the bad guys who aren't the bad guy. You know. What can I say, man? I was, I was, I was trying to go for that whole uh, Raymond, Raymond Chandler, you know, Dashiell Hammett in a sugar suit uh, sort of vibe too. I, I mean, I was just throwing a lot of stuff at it. Okay. So we talked a lot about your characters. So if your characters met you in a back alley and they knew that you were the Roy M. Griffiths that made their life a living hell, how do you see that interaction playing out when they met you in real time? Well, let's see. <laughs> um, I think Narg, who, who's actually, he, he studied humans. He would want to find out why I would do this to any hapless group of characters. Uh, most of the rest of them would, would uh, trample me into chutney. Um, Murph might, might take me out for a beer, um, but some of the others would not be as forgiving. Would they send you to the bearded clams? You know, um, the humans would. I don't, Murph and Narg would not. Okay. So the thing from HR, uh, a Cthulhu amalgamated novel is clearly a part of a series. I know it's on Amazon. There are currently three books out. You mentioned you are writing the fourth, but is their story done after that? What's next? Um, I don't know, man. Um, I, like I said, going back to that thing about I write whatever interests me. Um, I I don't plot my stuff out. Um, I'll, I have all kinds of ideas floating around at all all times. You know, here's one elephant ranch. 
here's another touch me there all this stuff just kind of floating around and sometimes they'll line up and you know i had that i had the image uh the opening uh image of narg sitting in his office drinking a, a hot cup of the blood of a thrice damned uh hangman uh and that was my opening image and i had a i had a vision for the end and they lined up and i said okay i know where i'm starting and i just fight my way to the end and uh the the technical term for somebody who does that is pantser as in rights by the sea of their pants some people do you know huge plots and and very detailed stuff i don't know it just works better for me to be organic so the fourth uh the fourth one was asked for for by my publisher and something came to me i'll, I'll write it but I mean, I got like 15 other novels I'm I'm ready to write. I got a uh, I got a play I want to write. Uh, a couple standalones, a ghost story. Got that vampire uh, script I want to turn into a novel. So uh, yeah, I don't know. Oh yeah, by the hands of men, people are asking for a book seven in that series, and I pretty much have that in my head. I can sit down and write that too. I want to try to knock out uh, about novels this year. How many? Four. Oh, that's that's ambitious. You could do it. So, uh, who is your publisher for this one? Uh, Tuscany Bay Books. They're a small indie publisher. Um, they have a focus mostly on science fiction and fantasy. Declan. They're publishing some of Declan stuff. I'm familiar um, with them. Yeah. Uh, Richard Paolini. I may be pronouncing his name wrong because I've only ever called him Richard. Uh, but yeah, yeah. They they oh they actually did science fiction. They were like pulp guys, basically. It's science fiction, fantasy, and westerns at one time. Uh, yeah, they had to narrow their focus when they uh, the new owner bought it. We've uh, we've interviewed him. Yeah, yeah. Um, so and so and I, I get that you know resources are what they are, so you got to build a build a brand. So we're talking about the elder gods, the old ones. So what sort of um, magic, non real time physics, that kind of stuff, can we expect from this universe? Wow. Um, uh, a lack of um, no consistent perspective in anything. Because, um, you know, they're outside of our three dimensions, the X, Y, Z axis is in the, the fourth dimension of time. Well, they're beyond that. So in my mind, that would mean that a black hole might be small enough for you to step on. And to be this really annoying thing on the bottom of your foot uh but you know and then you could skip among the stars or or other or things like that and so a lot of shifting i'd say shifting perspectives and sizes and relations and ratios oh yeah and um um distance you know distance is is very different it's it's almost uh uh distance is almost how you perceive it Okay, that works. So your book clearly has, um, based on the title, fantastical creatures in it. So when you create them, how do you go about doing that uh, when you write them? Are you inspired by your nightmares? Do you let nature inspire you? Do you make them up out of whole cloth? Like, what's your creative process for that? Well, I mean, you know, I, I have to establish the world with some of the classics. Um, Narg as a shug is is pretty much the, the only one that is really 
you know, um, textbook reference creature out of the, the uh, Lovecraftian world. For one thing, I didn't want to steal a lot of people's work. You know, I mean, a lot of people done a lot of stuff in the in the uh, Lovecraftian mythos. I'll, I'll toss out a few names that uh, just again just kind of anchor it in that world. But then after that, I just start making them up. Um, it, I, I mean, I, I I was sort of relying on the glossary of you know here's here's the names of the old gods you know uh, the lost Kadith and stuff like that. More like mm, more like Easter eggs, you know, in a way uh, uh, touch points. But after that, I was just just making stuff up, uh, whatever sounded interesting or funny. I can make up, you know, if I could make up a funny name for somebody, um, or you can make a joke out of something, I'd do that. So a lot of it's just strictly imagination, and part of it's how it it sounds. Um, can, can it sound like, you know, a mysterious uh, Rileyan word? But can it sound like something else? You know, can you get some assonance there? And, and uh, uh, so, yeah, most of them I'm just making up and seeing how funny I can make them while making them sound serious and ponderous. What about um, the uh, the descriptions? You've talked about how you named them, but like the description of what these creatures are going to look like. Uh, well, some of them are 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 in the actually the names. You know, um, it's the old it's the old comic uh, thing, the rule of three. You know, okay. yeah. it's not this, it's not this, but it's a, it's a, you know, banana cream pie. Uh, you know, it's always that third thing. So I will, you know, it's Narg is referring to some of the, the horrible things, um, in their world. And, uh, you know, the first one is the, you know, the she demons of this and the, uh, you know, the Gorgons of that. And of course the mailmen of doom, you know, that, delivers your tax bill every year. Yeah, yeah, something like that. Uh, and in other, <laughs> other cases, yeah. But that's where actually some of the description is where it goes back to the uh, the idea of uh, you know the lack of dimensionality. Uh, in one scene, he's recognizing, oh, human senses can only only perceive part of this thing, uh, whereas you know I, I know that it's actually bigger or more you know it has more it has more dimensions of its awfulness but even then so there's that uh, and uh yeah so I, I try to give the descriptions while still honoring the weirdness of it without uh without stealing other people's stuff too much that seems uncool okay so clearly this is winding down. Uh, we went a little bit long, but that's okay. Was there anything about the thing from HR that we didn't ask you that you wanted to tell us before we wrap this up? Mm. No. It's, uh, people tell me it's funny. It's the other thing about, hey, you writers out there, I've discovered if people like the stuff, they like it. If it's not for them, it's really not for them. And so... I, you know, I just learned to accept it. So if we, if you know about Lovecraft, but also you, you have a good sense of humor, you might like this. People, a lot of people have laughed out loud reading this. Okay. So do you have to be familiar with the Lovecraft lore to, to understand this novel? I think just faintly. You should just sort of vaguely understand. And even even then, I'm, I'm trying to, I was trying to 
set up the world a little bit going in the first few pages. But I think if you went in completely blind, if all you've read is Little House on the Prairie, it's going to be tough going. Okay. So this is the part of the interview, dear listener, where we like to remind you to please be kind and speak your mind on the reviewing platforms. Your reviews help the right readers find the right books, so do your part. And rumor has it that if you give him his 100th review, Cthulhu will not eat Roy Griffith's head. And he likes his head on his shoulders, so please do your part. Save Roy. For as little as one star review, you can save him. And uh, they get quadruple points when it's a five-star. So the five-star review, man, you're, you're saving him even quicker. So do your part. I, I get another couple extra years here to uh, try to finish my next book. There you go, people. All right, Roy, can you tell listeners how they can find you on the Wild Wild Interwebs? Oh, man. Uh, my website is RoyMGriffiths.com, much like the name here on the on the image. Uh, I'm on uh, Facebook as uh, Roy M. Griffiths Storyteller. Yeah, man, social media. Let's see if I can get these right. Uh, I think there's links in the show notes, but uh, I'm on Twitter as uh, Storyteller Roy. Is that it? I, I can promise you they're in the show notes, people, so you don't have to worry about it. He's on there as Roy M. Griffiths. His name is rare enough. There's no. I had no problem finding him. Type it into the Google and you're good. Yeah. Uh, and, and, uh, or, or check the show notes. That's good too. Thank you. Appreciate it. Uh, and also, hey, if you guys are, if you guys enjoy this stuff or you want to berate me, yeah, drop me a line. My email address is all over my stuff. It's uh, on Amazon. It's on uh, at my website. I love to hear from people. I really do. Uh, absolutely. And so uh, you can find us, dear listener, at Twitter at twitter.com backslash SF underscore fantasy underscore show. Sierra Foxtrot underscore fantasy underscore show. You can email us at blastersandbladespodcast at gmail.com. Again, blastersandbladespodcast at gmail.com. You had join us on Facebook where all the shenanigans happen. It's facebook.com backslash groups backslash blasters and blades podcast. Again, backslash groups backslash blasters and blades podcast. We do have that Facebook page. If enough of you follow it, we will get a dedicated URL. But in the meantime, it exists. So let your fingers do the looking. We have a website where you can listen to our episodes at anchor.fm backslash blasters dash and dash blades. Again, anchor.fm backslash blasters tag and tag blades. Where also, you could support the show for as little as 99 cents a month. You can help keep the lights on. The, uh, the podcast doesn't pay for itself, so anything you can do to defray the cost, we would greatly appreciate it. Uh, you can also support the show more directly over at buymeacoffee.com backslash author J.R. Handley. Again, buymeacoffee.com backslash author J.R. Handley. Be sure to put in the comment section that it is for the podcast, and I promise I will keep my co-hosts, Doc Saska and Nick Garber, duly caffeinated. They will drink until their liver surrenders. <clears throat> and if they were here, they would tell you there ain't no quitters. So uh, on that note, thank you for spending some of your precious time with us. For Nick Garber and Doc Saska, I am J.R. Hanley, and this was the Blasters and Blades podcast. We'll be back next week at the same time where we'll indulge our love of nerd culture, cheesy jokes, and all things that go boom. And, of course, hiding from Cthulhu, as you do. Thanks for uh, stopping by, Roy. All right, man. It's good talking to you.